It is good to be here. We've been talking about this for a while. <laughs> My name is Kelly Schoenfeld. It is so good to be in worship with you this morning. I serve as the lead pastor of a church in East Austin. You might have seen it or heard of it. It's called Servant Church. We're over in the Cherrywood neighborhood. If you ever frequent Cherrywood Coffee House, that's one of the local beverage establishments that we like to go to. And it is so good to be with you this morning. They send their greetings. They know that I am here, and we have a lot in common, our, our two communities. And it is a joy to have the privilege of sharing my story. Before I start, would you, would you pray with me? Glorious love, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm an Enneagram 3. Are there any Enneagram people in here? Any threes? Okay. Threes are like one of the ones that actually, you know, kind of claim our number every now and again. For some of you, you like totally gloss over as soon as I start saying Enneagram things, and that's okay. Um... But what I need you to understand about Enneagram 3s and what I'd like you to understand about me is that I have often found my value in performance. Somewhere along the way, push this down, I want to be able to see you guys. Somewhere along the way, I picked up a message after being very encouraged and affirmed in things that I did and things that I achieved and I was the kind of kid who, who excelled at a lot of things, so that was good. That was a good way to receive value. And I think those were good things that my parents instilled in me and, and my church instilled in me. I'm not saying that's wrong, but, but somewhere else along the way, some of those messages that I heard as encouragement actually became pretty foundational to my understanding of God. If I did things well and I did them right... I was loved. If I messed up, or if I fell short, then I became some sort of bottom pit-dwelling person that Jesus could never, ever offer love to. I would never, ever be worthy of the kind of love and forgiveness that Christ offered. I wasn't good enough to call myself a Christian. And friends, that's a scary place to be. Because there are a lot of verses in our scripture that people can take and can try to use to affirm that kind of belief system and that kind of thinking. And when you aren't necessarily taught, as I wasn't, how to read and understand the entirety of the narrative of scripture, you start to believe that. The church I grew up in, in suburban West Houston, uh, was a Presbyterian church. It was actually more on kind of like the progressive part of the Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, but the experience I had within my youth group, within um, the trips I took with students, uh, was very conservative and evangelical in nature. And in many ways, I wouldn't change that experience for the world because it was in that world in which I started to sense God's movement in my life that I might be called into this vocational preaching, pastoring thing. And at the same time, I know that I internalized some messages about God and about the Holy Scriptures 
and about myself that really harmed me and have caused me a great deal of pain. At best, those messages have been a source of wrestling with God. At best, those messages have been a source of deep-seated anger that was caused by what I maybe call now of lazy theology. At worst, those messages have been a source of such darkness that I didn't know if I was going to make it to the next day. I didn't want to come to Austin growing up in Houston. I didn't want to go to the University of Texas because I was a pretty sheltered suburban kid, and the people at UT seemed really, really weird. I'll fast forward and give you the punchline. I graduated from UT and a diehard Longhorn. So, so I changed my ways. I was accepted into the business school. I got into the Longhorn band. That was kind of my life in college. But here's what happened. When I came to UT, I finally was given a little bit of freedom and a little bit of space from this world that I'm describing. And I built up some courage to try and go on dates with women who I had been interested in. I was terrified. It was so rebellious. (laughs) And on more than one occasion, I would try and set up a date and I would be so petrified and homophobic that I just wouldn't show up. I ended up meeting a girl online who went to Baylor who was in a similar situation as me, and we ended up dating off and on for my sophomore and junior year. I was racked with guilt most of the time. I was hiding from my family and my friends and my church. And you know, the really easy way to get out of that last one was just to quit church. So I did. And when we broke up, I was torn apart with grief. I had experienced breakups before with boyfriends, but but this felt different because the level of shame and homophobia and grief that was intermixed with just the sadness of being a young person in the midst of a breakup was too much for me to bear. And I was home for the holidays that year, and my mom looked at me, and she knew something was wrong. My family and I are very close still to this day, and she said, what is wrong with you? Are you on drugs? Are you pregnant? (gasps) No. (laughs) And I, in my tears, sobbed. I said, no, mom. I'm in love with a girl, and my heart is broken. And she sobbed, and I sobbed. (laughs) She said, I don't want you to have a hard life. Do you want to have to tell our family this? I said, no. I don't want to have a hard life, and I don't want to tell a single human being on the face of this planet any about this. I thought God had made a mistake. I thought I was a mistake. I clearly wasn't good enough. I wasn't living up to God's standards as outlined in Scripture. I didn't want to have a hard life. Clearly, I had made the wrong choice to go live with the weirdos in Austin because they had done this to me. (laughs) I left that conversation, and I crawled back into the closet and didn't talk about it anymore. I doubled down on my faith. I cut off most of my contact with any of my LGBTQ friends because being with them was too hard. My internalized homophobia was provoked 
every time I was around them. I felt awful. <laughs> I worked at a Christian summer camp. With, if any of you are familiar with the camp world, you kind of go off into this bubble, especially in the late 90s. There was no social media or cell phones. You could go in the bubble and be super holy for like 10 weeks a year. And so that's what I did. And I thought, this is going to cure me. I'm going to be good. When I graduated, I moved to North Carolina for my first job after college. And of course, I felt freedom again to try and date women. So I dated women and I went to a Southern Baptist church. I thought this was going to be a good combo. (laughs) It was really an exercise in futility. I was miserably guilty trying to understand these patterns and assumed I was experiencing some sort of quarter-life crisis that I would prayerfully grow out of. After a year, I moved back to Texas and I married my best friend, Adam. We were college sweethearts. We were in the Longhorn Band together. He was there for me when I broke up with my college girlfriend, although he didn't know it. We had an amazing first decade of marriage bought a house, we had children, we traveled, I worked for Southwest Airlines, we had free flights, we got to live this like 20-something, 30-something-year-old dream. We had and have two amazing boys. Andrew is 10, he's going into the fifth grade this fall, and Brooks is four and has just started pre-K. And it was much like my call to ministry, these nudgings, these internal callings that I felt, oh, I feel like I get glimpses of my life. Do you ever get glimpses of your life? You say, I know that's where my life is headed. I'm not sure how, but I know that's where my life is headed. I knew that about my call to ministry, and somewhere deep within me, I knew that about my sexual identity. But in this simultaneous journey of of both vocational calling and, and calling to my authentic self, I kept thinking, I can't answer this call to ministry as long as I think I'm gay and hiding in a straight marriage. Because I can't answer my call till I'm more faithful, until I'm more excellent, until I'm performing better at this Christian thing. Pastors have to be better people than this. Pastors clearly have life figured out more than this, right, Trey? Seminary will have to wait until I can be better and get it all together. Ministry will have to wait until I can get it all together. Well, about eight years ago this month, I went on a walk to Emmaus. Have y'all ever heard of that? It's a retreat often found within the Methodist tradition, but there's a variety of denominations that hold retreats like these. And while I was on that walk... There was a clergy woman who was uh, one of the spiritual directors on that, on that retreat. I'd never met this woman in my life. And I asked her to pray for me. I was having an emotional weekend, and I just said, hey, I could, I could use a word of prayer. And so she sat down with me, and she prayed, and, and she answered for, for me to listen to God and to, to answer God's movement in my life and the Holy Spirit's movement in my life. <laughs> And I opened my eyes and I looked at her and I was thinking at this point that there's some sort of candid camera trick happening. And, and she opened her eyes and she said, Kelly, what are you supposed to be doing right now? And I said, I think I'm supposed to quit my job and go to seminary. 
And she said, oh, that makes complete sense. She said, I just have this stirring that, that God's just telling you, just, just go, be faithful, listen to God's movement. Well, friends, ironically, <laughs> in a prayer time just before that amazing moment, it kind of broke my, my heart open to the possibility of ministry. About an hour before that, we had a time of sacrificing prayer where, where we were supposed to leave things at the altar. We were supposed to give God things that we couldn't handle ourselves. I had laid at the altar my homosexual tendencies. I had been in an online support group through an organization called Exodus Ministries. I was trying to de-gay myself. A lot of us would post questions and try to find ways to isolate ourselves from temptation quit being friends with gay people, make sure we didn't watch movies or TV shows with gay characters, and we had to pray, pray, pray. I made deals with God. I tried to exercise and eat different foods. <laughs> I tried to hang out with godly women who had strong heterosexual marriages so that I wouldn't be thinking that I might be a homosexual. Well, with the encouragement of a therapist, I eventually came out to Adam when our oldest was about 18 months. His response was, huh. I said, do you have any questions? <laughs> nah, I'm good. I had vulnerably opened myself up to my closest confidant <laughs> and again was met with rejection. And so again, I left that conversation and I crawled back into the closet. Seminary was an amazing time of growth for me. I had been to seminary as a candidate for ministry from the United Methodist Church in North Texas. I came out of a church in Plano, the church where we had discovered the United Methodist Church the church where we were married, where our first child was baptized, and where I had answered this, this call that God had put in my life. Seminary was the first time I had ever felt like I was in a place with people who understood what these, these weird nudgings from God felt like. <laughs> what it felt like to be affirmed in my giftedness, and they held sacred space for me to grow in knowledge and relationships. They modeled the love of Christ for me and affirmed my call. I went to a very, very LGBTQ affirming seminary. Austin Seminary is right over here in the hills behind UT. And that was hugely uncomfortable for me because I had figured out how to be good at church and school and learning and faith as long as I isolated myself from the gay world. Whenever I saw couples on campus or out in public or a celebrity would come out or a student would ask a really good question about inclusive theology in class, I got really upset. And I grieved and I got angry. I grieved that I couldn't allow myself to ask that kind of question. I couldn't feel those things. Head down, ignoring, ignore it, keep going, just be good. During that season, 
I went to a workshop that was put on by the seminary, and I heard an author say something to the effect of this. She said, how can you tell God's truth unless you are empowered to speak and embody your own truth? Whoa. That struck deeply within my soul. It was the first time in my life that I felt like someone had articulated why my pastoral call still didn't feel settled. At this point, I was serving part-time at a church here in Austin while finishing my last few classes, but I wasn't serving authentically, and I wasn't serving fully, and I wasn't living fully. I was doing fine. I saw glimpses of living into my full pastoral identity, but at times, I found myself very dissatisfied and very unhappy in that role. I chalked it up to depression, which I've suffered from for a long time. I chalked it up to postpartum blues when I had my second son. But I knew somewhere within my soul that the layers were starting to break off of the facade. I knew that the shell was starting to crack, and I knew that the walls around me were beginning to crumble. I knew I wouldn't be able to serve at that church anymore because I could feel the wheels coming off. I just didn't know how to articulate it to myself, much less to anyone else. Thank God for the appointment system in the United Methodist Church because on Easter night that year, Teresa Wellborn, whom y'all have heard from before here, called me and she said, Kelly, the bishop wants you to go serve as the lead pastor at Servant Church. I was being sent to a fully affirming, progressive congregation where I knew I could be inclusive and supportive and at least come out as an ally. I could serve as a senior pastor. I could live into my calling. That would solve the discord that I was not speaking and embodying my own truth. I knew it. That was going to be the answer. Or so I thought. Well, I had somewhat of a breakdown and came out to my then therapist in the fall of 2017. And she said, Kelly, we'll talk about that later when the time is right. Nope. <laughs> not this time. I'm not leaving this conversation, and I'm not crawling back into the closet. I am going to find a new therapist. And I, <laughs> amen. And I was only able to do that because I found myself in a supportive environment. I had friends surrounding me. I had servant church surrounding me and lifting me up, not even knowing what was going on. Friends, I cannot overstate the importance of a safe environment and the implications that that brings for the growth and healing process. I know that was true for me. And so I found a new therapist who helped me walk through the coming out process to myself first and foremost. When I said I might be gay, she wasn't threatened and she didn't try to convince me otherwise. She wasn't scared. She wasn't worried about what her presence might do to her job or her practice or her family. She created space for me that I needed to have present in my childhood home and that I needed in my family's home and I needed so desperately in my church. 
And in the last 18 months, she has helped me come to see that I am not broken, I am not a mistake, I am whole, and I am beloved, and nothing about that is based on anything that I can do in my performance or achievement. She has helped me process my own homophobia, which still exists, my homophobia, which is largely the result of a culture that finds it necessary to still talk about me as an issue, a result driven by a culture who cares about who I love, and by a church culture that taught me about something called transactional faith. Now, they never used those words, transactional faith, but they said, do this and you'll be good and loved and forgiven, and do this and you won't. She has helped me process dysfunctional parts of my faith that have been so buried, so deep within inside me that I didn't even realize I had them. Beliefs that put everything into binaries. Make this decision and you are following God's perfect will. Make this decision and you are not. I had not realized until the last two years how embedded that conversation is in so many conservative faith circles. And how much it damaged my heart <laughs> to believe that I have control over anything that would grant God to love me less. My deeply buried theology has been purely antithetical to the understanding of the Wesleyan way of grace that I have come to learn and to love in the grace-filled theology of Methodism. And it has been such a safe place for me to, to deconstruct and unpack the harm that I absorbed. My support came through my therapist. My support came through late night searches on Google, <laughs> through which I found a support group for women like me, who came out later in life, many of us having married and had children. And specifically in that group, there was a faith-filled circle who was able to lament about that specific kind of church hurt that we experienced. That group gave me life in ways I will never be able to fully express. It also enabled me to become a pastor in my full being in that digital space. And it was then that I knew, I fully knew, that I needed to embrace my entire being so that I could embody who God has called me to be. It was when I was leading a congregation fully as a lead pastor that I started to feel the weight of my inauthentic life, my inauthentic leadership. I was preaching about things but not living them. I was preaching about God's grace but I hadn't received it fully for myself. You see, at Servant Church, every week when we offer a time of passing the peace, we ask people to look at each other vulnerably in the eyes and say, you are loved, you are forgiven, for we believe that is the gospel truth. And I found that I could not do that weekly without actually speaking my truth. How could I preach and teach the truth about the love of God when I couldn't speak or embody my own truth of being God's beloved? So in the spring of 2018, I came out to Adam again, and this time in a letter. I didn't want to be pushed back into the closet again, and I had to trust him 
and that he would understand more this time. It has been one of the most grueling and difficult years and a half of my entire life as we have navigated co-parenting and shared custodies and how to maintain our relationship with integrity and love. I told him then, and I still believe now, I am better able to fulfill my marriage vows now, living as the authentic person God has created me to be, than I ever could in the way that we were living in marriage. It has also been one of the best years of my entire life, as I have started to catch glimpses of the true, authentic Kelly, beloved child of God, called Gifted and created with a purpose to love and to be loved. And now when the United Methodist Conference happened in February and the General Conference made the decision to uphold the traditional plan, I knew it was time for Servant Church to understand what had happened between Adam and I. It was time to share the ways that God has been working on me and in me for decades It was time to risk my appointment and my reputation by giving voice to my beloved self for the very first time. Servant Church responded in ways that I could have never scripted, in love and support in ways that brought me to tears. Without telling me, they went and hung rainbow ribbons all around our church, on our sign, on the trees, So that when I got there that first Sunday to preach, five days after that general conference decision, after I came out to my congregation, that I would see that they love me. I told Adam that I was going to share publicly. It's a significant part of his story, too. And he gave me nothing but love and affirmation, as has in fact started with a few of my friends and allies group at the more conservative United Methodist Church, where he takes our boys every other week. He wants them to know that their mother is beloved. Queer Virtue is a book I have read this year which speaks from a female queer priest's point of view on how the church needs to move beyond inclusion and understanding and into receiving the gifts that our queer family has to offer. I guarantee you that LGBTQIA Christians have likely spent more hours and days and weeks and months and years agonizing over their faith than any straight person has ever had to do. Because there are very few straight persons who have been told that they are not a Christian simply by who they are. I want to read this quote that she, she shares about risk. She says, risk is what happens when you have something that you value and you take a chance with it, hoping to achieve something of greater value. Identity-based risks involve putting on the line something that is part of you, hoping to get a return on the investment that will also be a part of you. God models this exquisitely God speaks creation into existence, breathing God's own life into it. God watches us and waits to see what will happen next. What will we do? What risks will we take on behalf of love? Revealing oneself to others authentically always carries particular risks. 
And in my life, in order to find deep, intimate connection, I have to reveal myself. The stakes are high for any of us to love and to be loved deeply and intimately. But for me, for any queer persons in this room, the stakes are higher before we even say a word. Because revealing ourselves never ends. Coming out never ends. Every time I walk into a room, I have to scan and understand who knows that I'm divorced, who knows that I've come out, who knows that I am in love with the woman that I intend to spend the rest of my life with, who knows all of this information and won't reject me. And in rooms like this, I have to be aware of who won't file charges against me. Because I actively live into this tension of a denomination that claims I am gifted and valued while arguing about whether or not I can be a pastor. What I've told my DS and my bishop is, newsflash, I am a pastor. (laughs) And friends, I believe in the church. Our coming out process is just beginning. Because you see, when we reveal ourselves as affirming in the ways that Austin New Church does or that Servant Church does, we claim God's love in this particular way and we carry a risk. We carry a risk that a church we love might be rejected or that a people we love might reject us or that the response to our love might be cold and detached. And yet we still believe that coming out into this way of love is going to be worth it. Because we talk about love as the way we are identified in the world. Christians, they will know us by our love. Yet I have seldom seen anything in the church approaching the risks that queer people take every day for the sake of love. When a queer person comes out, whatever risk he or she takes, she has to believe that some part of her will survive. I had to believe that I was going to survive what happened next that some part of me was going to be stronger than the hate and the intimidation and the violence. And you know what that sounds like? That sounds like a resurrection story. And I don't put my faith in the church. I put my faith in the resurrection story of Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ and in his birth and life and death and resurrection. And God help us, I believe we are living out a resurrection story right now in the church and in our country and in this world. And as the old is dying and the new is coming to life, we have to believe that in our coming out, some part of us is going to survive what happens next. Our authentic and loving ministry and vulnerability will be well worth the risks we take. I believe it is at the intersection of my truth and my need for belonging where God has led me to this time and this place in this particular season of my life and the life of the church that has grown and raised me for the last 20 years. And it's going to take vulnerability and risk and for all of us as the church to understand even a sliver of what life is like daily and the risk of even existing. I pray that we are confident in our ability to risk the unknown, to risk unknown consequences, And to know that we are walking in a trust where God will bring life. God will not let us falter. And God will bring God's abundant grace in ways we can never express. And friends, there is nothing that you or I 
can perform or do or achieve to enable God's grace to be present in our lives. You are loved. You are forgiven. Thanks be to God.